Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facility to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self Storage Income. And today we have um, what is going to be an absolutely amazing podcast. I have to preface this because we had Scott Ramser on 
um, in the spring, and we were talking about boat and RV storage, right? And uh, that was a phenomenal podcast. It's one of our top listened to. Um, I'm very good friends with Scott. We have uh, entities and businesses that we're a part of together. And Scott, after that podcast, somebody heard the podcast, got a lead, and Scott went out from that podcast, and he actually closed on the largest boat and RV storage in the United States. And so this is going to be an interesting podcast, but it's going to be more interesting because we're going to get and we're going to talk to Scott's uh, partner in this deal that helps with funding and the LP investor side and how they set that up. And that's Adam Dearmont. And the, he comes from Ranch Harbor. And we brought both of them on to say, you know, you're doing these big deals. How do we do these big deals? How do you get investors? How do you structure this debt? There's so much to dive into on this podcast. I'm really excited about it. So with that, Connor, should we get started? Uh, 100%. Let's rock and roll. Adam, Scott, and thanks a bunch, guys, for coming in and hanging out with us. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, great seeing you guys this morning. It is. So, um, you know, we, we've we talked before this, and obviously, uh, Scott, you know, we talk all the time, but Adam, this is my first time, um, you know, being introduced to you. Scott speaks very highly of you and Ranch Harbor, and we had Scott on the last one, so maybe we could start out with, uh, Adam, why don't you talk to us, give, tell us a little bit about you, Ranch Harbor, and what you guys do, and then that can kind of lead us into then how you and Scott put this deal together and what happened. Sure. So Ranch Harbor uh, has been around for almost two years now, and we are uh, primarily a, a single check LP investor in value add, call it sub-institutional deals. So anything between uh, two to you know fifteen million plus or minus in uh, in, in LP equity check. Um, we source deals typically off market, but but we have uh, participated in some some marketed deals like uh, the the deal that we're talking about today. And the way that we work is that that we're funded um, by a, a large uh, family office investor um, that capitalized our balance sheet, and we're in a position when we commit to do a deal where we can fund that deal off of our balance sheet. And then we have a number of uh, high net worth family office and uh, foundation partners that'll come in and invest with us even pre or post close. See, now this is interesting, Adam, because when we talk a lot about funding deals and typically through this podcast, right, and other people that we have on, it's a more traditional way of funding LP sure. investors like I do, which is, you know, obviously one of the reasons we have this podcast is because people hear it, they want to invest with us, yeah. and they come, and Absolutely. we go and have large reach. Now, a lot of people, though, don't have either a platform or a reach, you know, that we've built through books, everything else like that for years. And so uh, a lot of people may say, well, I have a huge deal like Scott's trying to get. I don't have the reach to the LP investors, things like that, where it you do, but you're a single point of contact. And, and this is very different than what we do and how we do it. So um, explain maybe some of the advantages or even disadvantages of doing it that way as opposed to the other. Sure. Ab absolutely. So from uh, from a sponsor GP standpoint, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head. You have a single point of contact and it, it takes the fundraising part of the equation off of the table. So if you're a sponsor that is a good operator, um, and is maybe outgrowing your traditional syndicated uh, LP base, we come in, 
we take care of all of that in in our platform we typically uh provide the debt advisory as well so we we call ourselves a we're really a full stack solution um where we're able to bring the full capitalization of the deal to the table day one and let sponsors go out and find deals um from an lp standpoint we really stand kind of in the middle of, of two different business plans. And, and the way that we look at it is that on a typical um, sponsor uh, uh, GP syndication deal, um, the investor has full discretion, right, as to what they invest into, but they typically have maybe a little bit less controls than what you would have in say a blind pool fund that an institution puts up. On the flip side, if you invest in a blind pool fund with an institutional allocator, you give up all discretion in exchange for the controls that come with being a single check LP. So we kind of sit in the middle of those two worlds, which is to say that um, we're, we try and thread that needle between um, discretion and investor protections for the LP side, and then provide the GP operators with the ability to capitalize their deals in a more seamless manner. Yeah. And, and this is a very interesting point. And, and, you know, um, after talking with, uh, oh, Scott, where were we that we were having this discussion? It was actually in Vegas. And that was the first time Scott had told you. And I was so interested in kind of how you guys work, because traditionally you're right. You have institutionalized, right? Or you have the very more, uh, um, I don't know how to say it, like mom pop more like how I do it, right? Individual investors. I have multiple people hired that have to call these people with your checks, right? Yep. Everything. I didn't like the institutional uh, version for all the reasons you stated and some more, which we've talked about on the podcast. You guys can go back and listen about funding. And so this in between that, you know, you guys represent, this is a massive advantage that I don't think a lot of people understand because a lot of people get into this world where it's like, we want to do a big deals or maybe yeah. I'm right at the cusp of doing a portfolio deal, but they go, I can raise a million with friends, family, yeah. or people I know, but I don't know that I can raise 10 million or 11 million, even though I have everything else and I can execute. And so then they think that they have to go to institutions, which they don't like, or they don't want to do. And so, you know, this in-between option, we've never had, obviously anybody on the podcast talking about it, but you fit a very unique, interesting role, role in this world. Thanks, AJ. And the other thing that I think, you know, there are a handful of us that are, are out there doing that or doing what, what we're doing. One of the other advantages over the institution, and I'm sure you you know touched on this before, is you go with an institutional deal. That institution raises a fund. That fund typically has a defined life, and when you come down to the end of that fund, you're going to be selling deals maybe at, at a not ideal time where they're making that decision. And like with Adult Toy Storage, with the Orlando deal, which is now uh, RV Storage Depot, you know we looked at that and said, well. Scott's a great operator. We don't want to be locked into, oh, well, in 10 years, we have to sell this to, to return yes. capital no matter what. So we really try and structure each deal with a great degree of flexibility, depending on what the business plan is that, that the GP is, is providing and, and give them that ability to really judge the market and figure out when the opportune time is to, um, to exit if it is at all. And on these deals that you did, like this uh, this uh, um, one down in um, Florida, are these? Do you sign on the debt as well with Scott? Do you come in that way? 
Great, great question. So on that one, we did not. On other ones, we have. So the, okay. the differentiation for us is that if we are on the GP side of the transaction and putting in co-GP capital, which yes. we also do, um, we would be on, you know, the the most of the debt we do on this value add stuff is, is non-recourse, but we would typically be not in all cases, but more likely be on the non-recourse carve outs or completion guarantee there. In cases where we're strictly a limited partner, as we were in this deal, we're not on the on the debt. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, that thank you for that intro. I think that gives everybody a good framework here and obviously understanding uh, why Scott speaks so highly of you and this deal. So now, Scott. AJ, before we leave that, yeah. it, it's interesting. You know, I don't professionally have the patience to raise money from, I think we have 30 investors in this particular trend. Yeah. I, I can't do that. I, I don't have the patience for it. So yeah. We've been capital constrained over time because we would, you know, we would have investment, we would make it. And until there was either a refinance or a sale event, you know, we didn't really have additional capital to go do anything. In this particular case, you know, we put up, I think, 30% of the overall GP capital yep. and our LP investors put up 70%. And we were able to put that together very, very quickly. And we can get into the timing of that investment because once we once we finished the book and put it out to the market you know it was a matter of days that we had raised the almost 10 million dollars equity for the transaction that's you incredible know, was, yeah you know very very quickly you know adam's company does a great job they've got a great bevy of investors of which i'm one and um you know they responded very quickly loved the deal so these guys do a great job in presenting transactions packaging them up we also found a great lender you know a bridge lender so we can get through the work over the next 18 months and, and redo the deal and you know it's a it's a it's a really thoughtful and great part of us now moving forward you, you brought something up here scott that i really want to talk about and, and i've talked about this a lot on the podcast that a lot of people, when they're investing things, first of all, obviously you got to learn what's a good deal and you got to learn execution, right? But a lot of people aren't prepared when they go into deals, even when they find a good deal, even if they can execute to actually pull off the deal formation execution, right? So there's execution in the operations and the running of the business part, right? Like Scott, like you do. And then there's the execution of actually putting the deal together. And a lot of people don't understand that in parts of, in timings like the market that we're in today, right? Like that execution to actually get that deal together and work, that's hard on big deals from a standpoint of time constraint because you're not getting, right? You're not getting 90, 120 days to do deals, right? You're not, you, we don't have... People aren't giving us months to see if we can put this together. Like It's just not working. If you're going out and getting a deal, you need to be ready to execute and you got to be prepared to execute. And so I tell people, like, if you're not prepared with your capital partners, capital raisers, or you don't know, right, you can get into big, big trouble. And that's why I love what you did, particularly on this deal, is when Adam came in, it basically gave you the wherewithal and the assurity that you can get those investors, you can have this deal done and closed, which gives you a massive advantage when you're working and you're trying with the buyer to show, to say you're perhaps you're ready. And that leads you to acquiring deals like this. So let's 
let's dive into this, Scott. Let's dive into this deal. First of all, how'd you find it? What'd you like about it? And give us kind of a general description of what is the largest boat and RV deal in the United States. Talk to us about it. Well, the uh, the the beginnings of this, as we talked about early on, AJ, was you and I doing a, a podcast last spring and talking about the RV storage business and you know, something that we've been doing for a long, long time, and we focus on, you know, the majority of our business is in the RV and boat storage field. So that podcast went out, and um, Neil Gussis, who is a member of the Store Local Co-op and a friend of ours, saw it, and he was going to be putting this listing on the market very quickly after he heard it, and he called me up and he said, I have a deal for you. And he showed it to me, and you know, I, I looked at the aerial photographs and I saw a very large outdoor self-park component. Currently, there's 19 acres of outdoor self-parking, um, something in excess of 500 spaces. And then there's a um, indoor valet parking component in about 450,000 square feet of metal buildings where we valet park tenants inside the space. So, you know, very quickly, I flew out what my first call after that, after receiving the information was to Adam. And, um, you know, we all had a chuckle about the name of the facility. And that was and, my first thing too. I'm like, Scott, what are you getting into? You sent me that email and I'm like, I'm sorry, Scott. I, I, I I'm not in those kind of businesses. <laughs> so there's a, a, just a quick aside here where it actually was an issue with uh, legal and with the lender where because of the name, emails were getting stuck in spam filters. Oh yeah. That happened to me. Scott's like, did you get my emails? And I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't gotten any emails on this deal. You keep speaking of, and it's because our server wasn't letting them come through. So Scott, why don't you tell them what the name was? It's ridiculous. And we were, Adam and I were kind of chatting together going, what's going on with this attorney? He's not responding. And (laughs) what the hell's going on? And then we found out that it was stuck in his folder. We also got an email from an existing tenant not long after we closed, and we let them know we are changing the name. And they thanked us for changing the name because they were oftentimes embarrassed tellers and people that work on their RV to go down to adult toy storage. <laughs> <laughs> we are changing it to and RV Storage Depot in Altamont Springs. So uh, go ahead, Adam. I believe there was some insurance company questions too when it was being named as additional <laughs> insured or something. So, so it was it, it was a, once we got the attorney back on track, but it was a for, for a little bit of time. But you know, so podcast friend of store local store local member founder calls me up. At the deal. I call Adam. I rush down there and look at it. I make a really strong connection with the owner who's a 85 year old, um, really a pioneer. He started this, this, this facility in 1988 when the nursery business running in it was starting to down and he started slowly renting space to RVs and boats, which ultimately became, you know, the asset that it was when we purchased it with about 1800 tenants at the time we acquired it. And, um, you know, so we we love the space. We have two other valet indoor parking facilities, which is a little bit of a niche within a niche. And, um, you know, we understand that business. We like it. We want to continue doing it. 
and we were able to get our arms around it very quickly. We had it under contract in about 45 days. Um, we began exclusively negotiating on the deal, I think, within less than 30 days of me going down there. And um, Adam was with us side by side through the whole thing, talking about debt, equity. And we went round and round. There were lots of different scenarios with, with you know, fixed rate permanent financing, bridge lending, SBA lending. I mean, all the different things that we talked about over time. Okay. I want to, I want to stop you just real quick here because this is, you know, once again, this podcast is an educational podcast. We're trying to help others be more efficient, everything from operating to closing deals, to not make mistakes, not get into trouble. And this is kind of the playbook that we talk about on how to properly do a deal. And, you know, people know that I'm a broken record on some of the stuff, but what Scott just mentioned, everybody says, well, how do you get deals under contract, right? How do you, how do you separate yourself and everything? And I always talk about, yeah, you can do mailers, right? You can do all this other stuff, but the thing that separates operators and off-market deals or deals to get done a lot of the times is connections with the owner. And that's been a big separation from me. I talk with the owners. I meet them. I establish a reason we build trust and everything. And that's exactly what you did, Scott. You went down and you built, built a rapport with the owner. And people got to understand the economy is at a people economy. Deals are, it, it, it is transaction. Then next you were prepared. So you could say, I'm prepared. We can move forward. And then third, you moved quickly. And, you know, this is really a separation in a tight market of who can get deals and how you separate yourself out from the pack and how you actually get these things under contract. So I, I absolutely love this. Now, how big was the total storage facility square feet unit wise? Well, as, as Adam, um, I thought mentioned earlier, um, the total acreage is 55 acres, of which um, 41 is developed okay. in the in, in indoor parking, totaling something in excess of 1,700 spaces today. Wow. We are at additional 600 plus or minus spaces in the development of the 14 acres, which we currently are in the permitting process. And we'll begin construction on in the first quarter of next year. And we did have some funding within the loan facility that Adam had obtained for us, which will provide for the cost of construction of that additional 14 acres. But we also have just reconfiguring existing space. There's two outdoor self-parking areas on the south portion of the property with 22 acres. And we're adding about... 55 additional spaces just by moving those people off, flattening the land again, putting in the right feet and redoing the layout. You know, if you have average 200 bucks a space, you know, 50 more spaces is right around 10 grand a month. You know, so that's a big change to what's going on. You know, we have nine full-time employees at the property. So there's a, you know, there's a- How a many? Payroll. Nine? So it's, you know, $300,000 a year payroll, which is, you know, kind of anti-self-storage because, you know, we want to have managers there, very few, and yeah. online rentals and all of those things. But this is a business. This is not, and, and, and you know, it, it, the sheer size of this is, it, I, I love, this is so cool. Like, right? I'm totally nerding out because it is just, this is such an amazing, awesome project. One that I think a lot of people would either feel like, 
oh, I couldn't pull this off or I, you know, I couldn't do it. And and this is why we love having you guys on the podcast. First of all, it's the relationship that you built and particularly the expertise with Adam and your expertise, Scott, that showed how when you put these things together, you can pull off things that maybe you couldn't pull off otherwise. And you have nine full-time employees, you have this, but this is a, this is a business. This is, you know, this is not um, as simply, you know, thing. And that's how you approach things, Scott. That's how you approach the biz, you, the business of self-storage. You don't look at it uh, simply like, oh, lease up and walk away, right? Which I'm sure that's the reason that Adam trusts you, obviously, and invests Absolutely. with you because of that perception, uh, that perspective that you bring to the business, which is very important. Now, on this, One more yeah. Thing, um, AJ, and, uh, the relationship that we created with the owner also came even stronger over time. Um, my daughter, Allie, is our chief operating officer, and she started coming down with me very quickly um, to the property and overseeing the operations. And we started, you know, once we were under contract, we, you know, started talking about what our changes were going to be. And we actually were able to take over the manager of the a month before we closed. Oh, that's and we, awesome. were able, we were able to actually start making modifications to the property a couple of months before we closed so that we hit the ground running. But the relation the relationship with the owner became so good at one point. His his corporate office is also at the property and he has subsequently rented back space from us for a couple of years as he, you know, winds down his operation. But he 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 took me aside and he goes, you know, I want to invest in the deal. So he became one of our largest LP investors, along with being the seller and previous owner of the property, because he saw what we were doing in the site, and he was so excited about it that he wanted to invest in it. And as I said, he's one of the largest LP investors. Now that's confidence. Yeah. I that is that is awesome, uh, because you're talking about the person that owns the asset. And a lot of things. This may have started out with when I got started, right? Um, and we were buying bigger deals. And it, there was always something in the back of my brain, like, why are you selling? Do you know something I don't know, right? It, it, you know, it's like, do you think that this is plateaued? Do you think there's nothing else to get out of it? And I think a lot of people are thinking that. So to have the seller come back and say, yeah, I'm selling. I want to take what I've made out. I want to get my capital. I want to have an exit. But I'm so, I so believe in this product and what you're doing. I'm also going <laughs> to return capital. That's a big statement. That's really cool. Now, on here, I, I want to talk about the financing aspect. Okay, we've got this awesome um, property. It's you've you, you this execution, the price, how you guys are all come about this is, is worked out great so far. Now, let's really dive into here. The you talked a lot about um, bridge loans. We talked some about the uh, non recourse. So, talk to us about how you set up the financing on this? Um, what kind of tools did you use? How did the LPs, G, uh, GPs play into this? Um, what was your thought process going going through on the um, capital side? Sure. So, really, hold oh, on, go ahead, Scott. Before you get started, um, the GP side consists of myself and a longtime partner of mine by the name of John Saunders. And um, John and I very early on kind of looked at this decided that we wanted to have a significant GP investment 
and percentage of the transactions. So in talking to Adam, we, we set that up very quickly and, and both John and I do a lot of financing and we're relatively sophisticated investors, but we engaged Adam, you know, as I said, before I even went and saw the property the first time and said, hey, we got to figure out this deal. You're on it, I'm on it. And there was no question at that time that Adam was going to do all this work for us. So, you know, I sent him the package. He started doing numbers. We started talking about debt when I was in the airplane back looking at it the first time. And um, Adam, why don't you go through kind of some of that process that we went through and the different folks that we talked to. And sure. So, so this was a really iterative process. Um, as Scott said, we, we jumped on it right away, started underwriting the deal. And when we first got in there, the, the first thought was, well, this has 1,800 units and it's essentially fully leased. We're buying a stabilized deal. And we started looking at it and saying, okay, what type of, of perm deck can we put on here? How much leverage? Uh, you know, can we be comfortable with and how much IO term can we get? And that was really the first thought as we went through it. But what we found as we dug through the numbers is that there's a very big difference between the way that a, um, a longtime owner who doesn't have any partners is going to run a property like this and the way that, that Scott Ramsey is going to run it. So there was a big disconnect between the, the in place and call it the year one. And a lot of those things were you know, bringing in efficiencies that, that Scott brings to the table as, as an operator, as a property manager, his back office, um, some of the, the things with payroll and not, you know, different personal expenses that we're getting run through. So as we dug into it more, the, the conclusion that we came to was that, well, fixing an interest rate was, or fixing our interest rate for a long period of time was gonna be really attractive the advance rate was going to be extremely low um, to the point where it, it really wasn't all that accretive. So we took a step back and said, okay, what does this look like from a bridge standpoint um, where we can go in and, uh, and, and Scott can increase the, the operating efficiency, add some spaces, um, really get this business running the way that it ought to be running. And, and that was really the, the primary business plan that we came up with. Now, in doing that, we, we looked at two different things. One, you have the south side of this property, which is cl much closer to stabilize. The restriping and, and, and reconfiguring isn't as dramatic. And it's really a matter of streamlining operating expenses and getting some operating seasoning before that can be refinanced out. The other part is the north side. And the north side of the project you know, you've got 14 acres of additional developable land that once we get the permits takes roughly a year to, to build out and then it's gonna take some time to lease. So we have two different timeframes that we're working with. And we've looked at some SBA options to do the developable piece and never really got comfortable that that, that was the right way to go. And just what we concluded was the last thing that we wanted to be doing was um, have two separate loans that were closing at the same time, at, you know, in escrow. Because we, for for a minute there, we looked at a bridge loan scenario for the north side, which is the outdoor portion, and then a permanent loan on the south side. And we just concluded that that was going to be a mess. The easiest way to do it was to get a single bridge loan that had a partial release provision that was going to allow us to refinance out the south side of 
the project um, south of uh, Hillview Drive and allow us to continue to develop the north side. And when we went out to the market, it was your your typical cast of char characters with debt funds and, and regional banks. And it was very much a, a process of, of getting lenders comfortable with this type of business plan because it is outside the box. Yes. This wasn't just a straightforward value add on an existing self-storage facility or mm -hmm. multifamily or warehouse or whatever. So we, we found a lender that um, is a, um, a correspondent for a life insurance company, and they had done a bunch of truck storage facilities before. So this translated well. And once we got through the uh, initial hiccups of having the, the name um, stuck in, uh, in spam <laughs> filters, they engaged really quick. They were aggressive. They were great to work with. And, you know, most importantly, they got on board with the structure that we were proposing and did enough of an accelerated um, uh, pay down if we were to pay off the refinance the south side of the, the site quicker that they were comfortable having all the outdoor storage um, remaining on their loan. And in fact, um, they got to the point where they said, we'll go along with this, but in exchange, we want a right of first offer to uh, to go refinance this onto our permanent financing program yep. or platform. And, and 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 do you mind me asking who that was? What the what the lender was? Sure, it's a group called Aramark, out of uh, Denver. Okay. And on these bridge loans that you're talking about um, now, does this bridge loan encompass part of the expansion? So did the bridge loan it also does. give you, okay, gave you capital to expand, grow? Yep. And is this bridge loan a non-recourse or is this recourse and then the perm is going into non-recourse? This is a non-recourse bridge loan um, at, at 65%. And for the most part, the, the options here were really going to be to go um, with a bridge lender like a debt fund or life insurance company non-recourse or a regional bank that was going to be recourse and was just going to have tougher underwriting for this type of project because yeah. it's a little outside the box for them. Yeah. One thing I really love about this is the fact that especially people that are just getting into storage uh, or maybe they've done a deal or here or there or whatever that looks like. Um, and you're, you're going into this thinking that there's Again, we've kind of talked about these things in the past, but you you have this concept of there's one way to you know do your due diligence to find a facility to purchase it to fund it to you know there's these set realms and how to how to fund it how to bring people together. Whereas this yet again is another perfect example of how you guys had all these tools in your toolbox. You looked at the options you from from the banks to the financing options to the structure options. There wasn't just this like plug and play, like you just knew exactly what to do and how to do it right then and there. It was this process of going through and figuring out what was going to be the best. Even again, I mean, you guys being sophisticated investors that you are, you're working through these problems from deal to deal, which I think is such a huge thing to point out to everyone and yes. that this never ends. Like it's no, always, always this, this you're always doing this. So a lot of people that. expect that. They expect yeah. it to be okay, I should look on the MLS, there should be a deal, and it should 
be a deal. Like it should just be a good deal, right? And my financing options are and just this, this, this and this. I, ha- like, I, yeah, I have this bank, and that's my financing option. Yeah. And then I just buy it, get debt, and it's a good deal, and we make money. And we, you know, we talk about this even as you know we've had such tremendous growth in our company this year, and we've been trying to restructure. Um, internal processes as we reorganize our company. We've hired endless amounts of people. We have over seven large acquisitions already under contract for the first quarter, as well as 650,000 net rentable square feet that we're developing. And we're like, okay, we need to make sure we're more efficient. And how can we make sure that each deal we process, you know, and it's like, we can set up internal structures, processes, and systems uh, to execute that are good, right? But at the end of the day, these deals are dynamic and we have to internally be regimented on execution, but allow flexibility to adapt with opportunities. And it shows that people think that I think there's this end version where it's just A, B, C, D, right? And, you know, Scott, as me and you know, that's not how it works, right? Opportunities come out of nowhere. We may not even know how to get it done. And lots of times we don't. It's that we we identify it. The number of iterations that we went through in looking at, at the plan and, you know, recalculating and changing this and changing that and you know, every one of the line items that you have in operating a facility and, you know, analyzing each and every one of those and talking about it, you need to have, you know, you need to have somebody in your camp and Adam is taking this role for us that, that understands what the lenders are looking for and what you can offer them and what they will accept. And that's the key to this whole thing with the lenders, with the lending side of it. And then also, obviously, with the with the preparation of the packages for the LPs, you know, you send out teasers and then you send out the actual package. And then Adam's process to sign on investors is extremely, uh, you know, it's a well-oiled machine. You know, if, if you, you get the teaser, you like the deal, you go on the portal, you sign up, you sign the documents, you get the wiring instructions, you send the money in, and it's it's all streamlined. And in order to make something like this happen in the time frame that we had, you know, you've got to choose the right person really quick because as soon as you open escrow, you know, you put a half a million dollars down, then you contract for, you know, what, $150,000 worth of due diligence work with yeah. survey, topo, phase one, property condition assessment, zoning report, appraisal, you know, and all the stuff that you do. And, you know, when you have a partner like Adam, you know, you, you, you have it well outlined and it's a streamlined process. And, you know, fortunately we all know what we're doing and, you know, you, you get deals done that way. And we had, you know, this was, I think the fifth transaction that we had done together. So what to do? I think that's such a perfect point to that is, is finding those people that have those systems in place already those experts that know what they're doing, how to do it, uh, as opposed to you yourself trying to figure out and reinventing the wheel and how to execute those things. That's one of the big things is, um, I don't know if you guys have read the book, Who Not How, where it's instead of asking how you're going to do something, 
who are, who? who do you know? Who who can you contact that can do that thing for you and that uh, would bring value to that? Which again, is just another huge point of having those go-to people that have that infrastructure, that have those processes to where, again, you're you're reducing that time frame uh, because, I mean, it's essential. You, we don't have long time frames in this, yeah. uh, this world we live in. Um, and it's just so essential in every aspect of of finding, purchasing, funding, running the facilities, building everything, having those go-to people that just know what they're doing, have those systems, it's, it's huge. We talk about it all the time. Success doesn't happen on an island. It's a team sport. Um, and it's, you know, one of these things that, you know, I, I, I joke from ideas, there's no such thing as self-made from the standpoint is that if you have that in your idea, in your in your mental thing, where it's, I have to do it. It has to be based upon me. You're going to fail. And you should never invest with somebody that has a view that way, because there's no way we can be everything and we can be good at everything. And you need to understand those weaknesses and you need to understand those areas where we find out those partners that can come in and bridge those gaps, right? Or you're going to do reckless things. You're going to you're going to put yourself in danger that never needs to be had, or you're just not going to go anywhere. And and that includes AJ, as you know, you know the relationship with this, who's the real estate broker that had this listing, and you know him providing us with the information on the deal to begin with, but guiding us through the acquisition process and nudging us where we needed to be with regards to getting this particular transaction done. Then you have, you know, my daughter, Allie, who's the chief operating officer of the company, you know, changing the facility over to a new property management system, getting an, an employee handbook to all of the employees, getting the website set up, doing all of the things that you have to do. And, you know, with 1800 tenants, you know, we had to send out a new lease agreement and we were able to do that. 45 days prior to closing and got our, got our new rental agreement to every single one of the tenants and made sure that there was a signed rental agreement in each one of the files for every single tenant and all that due diligence that you do, you know, it's a team effort. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point where, you know, working on a deal like this from a capital partner perspective, we have such a great degree of, of confidence in, in Scott and, and his team and Allie that we know that they are going to take care of the operating part of it and get that right. And then we can split off and take care of the capitalization part of it and, and getting that right, you know, without looking over our shoulder and, and wondering, okay, is the, does this operating partner know what they're doing? Are they going to get this right? And we just have full confidence in them because we've seen them do it time and again. 100%. Now, guys, this uh, th- this is all great. I want to make a little shift here, though. And that, that shift is, you know, uh, thank you, first of all, for walking through this this deal. Um, and, you know, here in a year or two, I can't wait to have you back on to hear about the execution of that. Cause I, I think follow-up is really important for people to understand. Here was the plan. Here's what went right. Here's what didn't. And here's how things turned out that were how we thought it was or not. Because as you know, Scott, and you know, Adam, there's going to be shifts. You're going to have to zig. You're going to have to zag because you may have a perfect plan, but things happen, right? That's just how it works. Um, but as we, as we get on from here, I wanted to talk to you both about, um, 2022. What are you guys seeing 
as far as the market landscape and uh, not just um you know Adam you do you invest in and Scott lots of different assets uh not just self storage or boat boat and RV this year has been a crazy year to say the least um and you know a lot of people are really torn right now and feel that they're unable to execute because they're not sure how the landscape um, is going to play out. And with the announcement, yes, uh, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, that the Fed now says, listen, we are going to really back off our easing, which it was my perspective that, duh, but I, I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, they got to play face, they got to do the thing, but that we're now moving from a COVID environment into a high inflation post-COVID world um, that includes uh, incredible mind-boggling, mind-boggling stimulus and injection of capital into the United States, unlike anything the world has ever seen. And it's such a jolt for a lot of people. I feel like they're unable to move. So when we get experts like you guys on, I want to know your thoughts going into next year. You have confidence in the markets. Obviously, you're doing big deals like this. But what do you think is going to happen with the debt markets, um, the capital markets? And overall, what are you guys looking for and seeing into next year? So I, I think, you know, what's going on in the capital markets, and this gets a, a little bit wonky with, with interest rates, but, you know, take a stab at it, is you know, look at what's going on um, in the treasury market. And treasuries, the yield curve's been flattening out for a while now, meaning that the short end of the curve has been moving up quicker than the long end of the curve, which actually is, has been moving down of late. And, you know, the long end of the curve, the 10-year historically, whenever the Fed tapers, actually yields tend to come down. They, they have four times now, and this is the fifth time, and it's been happening so far, despite some pretty uh, heavy inflation data. So you kind of look at what the Fed's saying, but then you look at where markets are responding. And for most of this year, the Fed kept saying transitory, 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 and rates, although from a very low level, kept going up, up, up. Now the Fed's saying not transitory, not transitory, and, and rates on the long end of the curve are coming down. <laughs> yes. Which, I, I mean, a lot of it makes me wonder how much of this is trying to set expectations of we could do this or we might do this versus we will do it. Um, so, look, I, I mean, if if I were able to, to predict interest rates with any degree of accuracy, I'd be taking the Zoom call from my own island somewhere. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what we look at really and, and will continue to in 2022 is where can we find deals that have a good story, that, that have the potential for some upside and operators who can execute. And despite the frothiness that is present in a lot of the market right now, those opportunities are still out there. And, and it really comes at, you know, looking at projects with a differentiated lens. And, and I think that's key, you know, where some bidders may have looked at this opportunity in, in Orlando and said, well, this is mostly built out. It's a stabilized deal. I can pay this and just continue to maintain the status quo and bump rights up slowly and everything else. Whereas Scott Ramser looks at it and says, 
okay, yes, there's a great opportunity here on paper. It looks like it's fully leased, but we can go in and, and re-engineer the outside of this. We can add operating efficiencies. We can get NOI substantially higher and then set this up where there's the potential for some really good cash flow, cash on cash growth, and the ability to hold long-term. And, and I think that's really the key of, of what we're looking at is not getting into those scenarios where you're just chasing beta, but but rather finding the operators that can deliver alpha and then enabling them to execute their business plans. Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, it's this, everybody that's uh, listening to this podcast is obviously, yep, okay. I could not agree more. And I think, you know, that, that perspective of what you just said is really important because I, I say this a lot, you know, you need to macro, you need to have a macro understanding, but a micro execution, meaning you need to understand what's happening macro, but you shouldn't let the tail wag the dog. Meaning I understand what it is, but I don't time markets. I don't say, yep. oh, the market's this way, so we're not going to buy deals, right? That just has virtually never played out for anybody. And we see how many people said, oh, COVID, we're out of the market. And that was the worst decision you could have ever made. And it's we because a lot of these things, like you said, we just don't know. Right. We don't know. So then if we have a macro understanding, which helps right after 2008, because of our macro understanding. Right. We went all in. We started buying. We started doing it. But the, the action was still micro. So although we started buying, we were only looking for value add deals that had tremendous potential potential. We were chasing alpha as in where's our spread? What's our total return going to be. And really, you know, we talk about this a lot when people say, well, what are you buying on a cap rate? And I'm like, we don't buy on cap rates. I buy on IRR. I buy on cash on cash. Yep. Right. So I, I really look micro at those deals. Um, and people are like, oh, cap rates have come down. You know, how's that affect you? And I go, it doesn't affect on individual deals. And even though I understand what that means and the pressures pushing cap rates down, it means that I have to look at 10 times more deals to find that deal, right? That's sure. going to yield that. Um, I, I think that's absolutely incredible advice. Scott, what are your thoughts? Oh, go ahead, Adam. Oh, one other thing that I just, you know, point out is, that there's been a chorus really since post-financial crisis, you know, going back to 2011, 12 of a, a crowd that's been saying that, you know, cap rates, interest rates have nowhere to go but up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's a very dogmatic approach and it's been wrong for years. Yes. And it's not saying cap rates and interest rates can't go up. They do 100%. all the time. They do all the time. You know, it, it, you look at... Um, 2000 and what happened during the downturn right in the in the last crash interest rates went down cap rates went up why capital evaporated from the market yep um but but that dogmatic approach of saying that well they can only go up can leave you on the sidelines missing a lot of good opportunities because you're letting that macro just overwhelm the yeah. micro analysis and, and not only that miss opportunities but you could be so people don't understand how far behind you can get. And this was the problem that I had. You know, I was building a house in 2009 and everybody's like, dude, you're a moron. You're building a house in the biggest real estate crisis that we've ever seen. And I'm like, I can build an entire house on two acres on a pond and I can get it done in three months and I'm paying 90 bucks a square foot in the highest end area. I go, listen, I, I don't know. You're right. 
real estate prices, they'll probably keep going down. We're probably gonna have problems. But this makes sense right now. It makes sense based upon what I'm doing. And I did it. So millennials were all sitting on the sidelines saying, I'm gonna wait till the next crash happens. Well, what's happening now is all the millennials are trying to buy homes, which is yep. now skyrocketed home prices. And the cost to those people from waiting till a next crash was coming, they can never make up for that. You're talking about homes that are now four times the cost and the price that they were when they should have been buying and everything. And, that, and that's a perfect example of people that are waiting for that opportunity that had already come by, which it's just not going to happen again. Or if it does, you can never time it. So don't. Great point. So, uh, Scott. You can't, you can't time the markets. You're absolutely right. You know, I'm more of a micro guy. You know, all politics is local type of scenario. And, you know, the big thinkers can think macro. And I do consider Adam Deermount a big thinker, by the way. But um, what it is making us do is become better business people. Because you have to look at a transaction and figure out where the upside and every little thing helps from payroll to internet marketing, to utilities, to internet costs, connectivity, you know, all of those things come into play. And it might appear that they're selling this particular transaction for a sub five cap rate, but you go in and do the things that you know how to do to decrease expenses and increase revenue. And you can, and you can drive that up. But I do think there's going to be a little bit of a pause as things reset a little bit because, you know, you look at you look at some of these deals that are coming out now, you know, people want sub five caps for an outdoor parking lot in Nampa, Idaho, that yep. is really vacant lot on dirt with some trans with with some chain link, and it's like you know, I mean. They have an office. They don't occupy it. There's a phone number. That's and a mobile office. The guy, the guy will come by if you need a space. And they've got some big camping world RV dealers taking up the majority of the space. And it's all right now. But you know that deal. You know, there's no there there. They haven't yep. done anything to justify a 7.2 million dollar purchase price. So you have to be really careful what you're looking at. And what you're doing, I, I do not see any reason why occupancies aren't going to stay really high in the for the time being. I don't see why valuations aren't going to continue to go up because there's so much capital on the sidelines looking for transactions. And it just means that we, as people that want to acquire additional facilities, are going to have to be that much more diligent in finding it. And it's, it's, you know, it's off market transactions. And, you know, Adam has recently found a deal in, in Boise where, you know, it's a, a off market apartment deal that I'm glad that I had the opportunity to invest in. And it's the same way in the storage business. You've 100%. got to find things and do the hard work to find them and then see where the upside is. And if it's not, there, then move along. 100%. Something else will come up. You know, this is a perfect example, and I love that uh, one that you used uh, on Nampa, right? And we talked about it, and I emailed you, and I'm like, the value's not there. And this comes down to this micro-thinking, where it's like, well, prices are going to go up and everything. Well, when you look at that asset, the replacement cost of that asset across the street, basically, 
right, is $300,000. There's no regulatory insulation. So there's no barriers for me to do exactly what they're doing across the street. Zero. There's no real assets there. It's a mobile office. So for me to exactly replicate what is being sold for seven and $8 million tomorrow, it costs 300,000 with virtually no barriers of entry. Right. Well, and so in it, my mind though, AJ, you know, we, I am dishing that deal, but you know, you've built into the valley, which was one of the highest supply supplied markets in the country. Yeah, still and is. Was, and was able to build a facility, get it rented, and have it be profitable. It's interesting that, you know, it can be done. 100%. You just have to be reflective and really careful and know what you're doing so that, you know, you don't get hit by a guy building a facility next door or you're unaware of. The, what what is in the what is in the queue to be developed in your market area? Uber yeah, I, I micro. Think, I, I think that's where people get burned is not understanding supply constraints, just yes. slapping a cap rate on something that ends up well above the replacement cost, and then they're just so exposed to competition in a downturn. Hundred percent. It it you know this comes down to. Um, it, it, this this micro aspect, a lot of people just so they so devalue the importance of this. They they're viewing the news, they're viewing things that go on. And when you look at, uh, you know, we use Idaho as an example, Scott, because of its extremes, right? So it is the highest per capita place in the country and the world. So there is no more self storage here particularly in the Valley, than anywhere else in the United States. Idaho has the highest per capita. Now, with that said, we're a rural market, right? Like, you guys have more people in your neighborhood than we do in our state. And so when you look at, well, how is this working? Now we have high growth rates and everything. But then people ask me, well, hold on. You're saying this, AJ, and you're saying there's danger, but yet you're you're building, right? Oh, yeah, but where I'm building, there's two square feet per capita. It happens to only be in a three-mile radius, and you can't build there. There's no land. There's We had a loophole and a barrier of entry, which allowed us to get something approved because it was pre-approved at a different usage, so the city couldn't say no to us. But anybody else, they've said no, and we continue to say no. That is a perfect example of how micro can trump everything else, Right. In that project that we're building in the highest per capita market, it's this little sliver area that we're like, this works, right? Will probably be one of our best, most valuable deals we've ever done. And it's, once again, don't let detail wag the dog. Um, all right, guys, we've held you guys for over an hour now. Um, this has been a absolutely fantastic conversation. We appreciate your openness. We appreciate you walking through the deal. There's not a person that listened to this that's going to walk away from this for not having a better understanding. So where can people go find you, reach out to you with questions? How do people get a hold of you? Sure. So uh, best place to find me is uh, our website is Ranch Harbor, R-A-N-C-H-H-A-R-B-O-R.com. And that's uh, that's got my contact info on it. It's got our investment info on it. It's got our uh, we do a, a daily blog on there as well. And uh, that's that's the best place to find me. And we're uh, I'm available at our uh, ramserdevco.com, R-A-M-S-E-R-D-E-V-C-O.com. And AJ, as you know, 
from our last podcast, we got a ton of calls and I take everybody's call and spend time with them and give them whatever advice I can. There's actually still a couple of outstanding transactions I'm working on with folks from that. And we'll see what, what comes about with it. But, you know, both Adam and I are available to chat with anybody that has interest. Absolutely. We really thank you for that. Um, it's one of the reasons why we have you on guys, because you're, you're so generous with knowledge and acceptability. So that will all be in the show notes, everybody. Thank you guys so much for coming on. And we look forward to hear, hear how your success goes and uh, how you guys just knock it out of the park with this deal. Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you guys.